In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we're going to be talking about some foreign policy stuff, and then we're going to be talking about impeachment, which I know is Michael's favorite subject to talk about. And then we're going to finish up by talking about some primary stuff. Lots of primary news to talk about. Uh, But before we get to all that, Michael, what is our theme for today? Today our theme is flip-flopping. Flip-flopping. And you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of flip-flops. I prefer there to be like a cover on my foot. Yeah. You know, flip-flops just have never appealed much to me. That's interesting because lo- I'm a Burks guy. I love some nice free toes. What I don't like is a thong, which, you know, flip-flop, a thong between the toes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I hate that. I yeah. hate that. It, you know? It's uncomfortable. But like the sandals, in, I like the sandals because they don't have that. Mm-hmm. You can just put your foot right in there. Slide right in. Yeah. But in this context, we're talking about political flip-flopping. Oh, mm. oh. Huh. I probably could have guessed that because we're a political podcast. Yeah, not like a footwear podcast. <laughs> but anyway, it's about political flip-flopping, which probably doesn't sound that interesting to you because you're probably throwing it like you're probably saying like, well, all po- political, all politicians flip-flop. They're always changing their opinions, stuff like that. Back to our politics versus or principle versus strategy episode at the beginning. But there are some nuances when it comes to discussing how politicians and public figures change their opinion and how they communicate com- communicate communicate that to their constituents. Yeah. And so we wanted to set that little stage and then we'll go into talking about how that applies to our different stories. Cuz one thing I think that is important to note is that politicians are people. Yeah. People do change their opinions. And and we want are, that. Yeah, we absolutely we want, want that. We want politicians to change their opinions in response to new information. Yeah. Absolutely. So the question of flip-flopping should not be about, oh, if you've changed your mind once, that makes you uh, that makes you a terrible person. Uh, the question is, why did you change your mind? Did you change your mind for political convenience or did you change your mind because that is legitimately what you believe? Yeah. And that actually poses a pretty important strategic question too, because it then not only becomes a, f- uh, a matter of what actually changed your mind, it becomes a question of how you communicate that to your constituents um, and how you communicate that politically. We saw, you know, we've seen throughout the primary developments that as people change their mind, um, if they do it in a way that's not communicated or they seem to change it too often, it feels ingenuine. And that undermines the confidence that we have in them as honest political actors and truly principled candidates. Yeah. Uh, a good example I would probably bring up of this would be uh, Kamala Harris. Who we'll be talking about later Which as well. we will be talking about later. Um, but she was one of the first people to sign on to Medicare for All, and she didn't talk about it until it was overwhelmingly popular, until there was a poll that came out in which there was like 70% support. Now, it's not 70% anymore because there's been a major uh, misinformation campaign against Medicare for All by corporate Democrats and by Republicans, but she 
shifted over to supporting Medicare for all at a very convenient time for her politically. Yeah. So what should you be on the lookout for when thinking about flip-flopping versus like a change of opinion? One, um, you want to be aware of like how often a candidate is doing it and whether there's suspicious timing. So if someone's switching back and forth in a non-detailed way between two different or multiple different perspectives, either they haven't thought about it very deeply, which is not a good sign, or they are just trying to do whatever's politically expedient at the time, which we might argue is close to the Harris example. Yeah. Or, you know, you could say, uh, say, hypothetically, there were a candidate who supported a policy, let's call it stop and frisk, uh, and supported it over and over and over and over and over again, and never apologized for it. And then right before he decided to run for president, thought, you know what, I should probably apologize for that, and then apologized for it, and then ran for president. That right there is some suspicious timing. Yeah, that's a great, that's a good call out. So another thing to look out for is when a recent perspective change um, puts the candidate at a point of like internal inconsistency with other policies that they hold. So you wanna be on the lookout for like hypocrisy among their policies for that kind of thing. So that's flip-flopping. And now we're gonna get into our first uh, story of the day. So today we're gonna come at you with something that might seem really surprising. We're going to start off this next segment by talking about a time when Trump was right. <laughs> Trump's foreign policy on the campaign trail. Nathan, why don't you tell us about some points when, you know, Donald Trump seemed to actually have like some good ideas. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I think really put Trump ahead of a lot of, of, a lot of the other candidates in the Republican Party during the 2016 primary was the fact that he was being unapologetically anti the Iraq war. He was being unapologetically like that was a terrible decision. Bush was an idiot for putting us in there. And you had this interesting dichotomy between him and Jeb Bush. Now, for a long time, the media thought, oh, well, Jeb Bush, is he's just going to get the nomination. He's going to run away with the nomination because he's the establishment decision. He's the establishment choice. He's the uh, He's the choice that the media had already kind of picked. But the thing is, when you have Trump standing up there saying Bush was an idiot for going into Iraq, and then you have Jeb Bush sitting there who can't really say anything about it because that's his brother, you really do have a case in which Trump is on the right side. Yeah, you act, like it was a weird circumstance when some stuff, some rhetoric that Trump was laying out there, not the way he said it, but like the underlying points, yeah. um, were actually in line with like some bipartisan issues, some interest in the United States, you know, not being involved in endless war all the time, yeah. you know, not being the sole police of the globe. Like you'll, you'll hear a lot of people on the left talk about wanting to decrease, you know, defense spending for the United States. Well, one of the reasons we have such high defense spending is because we have stations and outposts everywhere. Yeah. And like, and Trump has pushed allies to um, up their NATO spending and focus on trying to, you know, increase security without totally holding the burden in America, which is a positive step. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to an extent, I would say. Uh, in some cases, he has kind of uh, gone a little bit far with NATO and sabotaged our relationship with our NATO allies. But at the same time, it is important to note that uh, 
the possible justification for it from a progressive perspective could be I want other countries to pick up some of the slack because I don't want America to be the world's police anymore. Yeah. And that is the big challenge for Trump being mentally stunted (laughs) is that the devil is always in the details and not just like the really, really complex stuff. Like basically all of his foreign policy is the goals and none of the sub bullets. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's all just the talking points. And so like, that's where he's actually had a tremendously negative impact. And now we're coming back to your regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> yeah. So that's sad because naturally I thought we were about to start talking about how wonderful Trump is because seeing as how he campaigned for stopping endless war, I mean, we're in the third year of his presidency. So, I mean, we're out of the Middle East, right? Yeah. There are no troops in the Middle East at all. It's the, the wars are over. World peace has been achieved. All our allies are happy. Oh, everything good has occurred. Wonderful. So why is it that I'm looking at this uh, this headline that says Trump mulls sending additional 14,000 troops to the Middle East? Fake news. Fake news. It's got to be. <laughs> so tell us about that. What's that about? So first off, one thing I think is important to note is that uh, since May... We have actually sent in 14,000 more troops. The headline that I just read you is Trump considering to send another 14,000 troops into the Middle East. Now, there are a few things of note to discuss here. First off, there are some things that Trump has done that have kind of on the surface seen seemed like a uh, peripheral nod to his anti-war rhetoric that in practice do not actually fulfill that in any meaningful way. One important example was him moving troops out of Syria and uh, abandoning uh, the Kurds. So he was criticized for that. And I thought that there was a lot of stupid arguments on both sides uh, when it came to some of those criticisms. I, I do think that uh, we shouldn't have just necessarily left them without any type of exit plan. Um, But At the same time, the strategy of trying to end wars and pull troops home, I think that is a noble strategy. But the problem is, that's not actually what he did. Because what he did was not pull the thousand troops from Syria and the Middle East completely. Instead, what he did was relocate them to elsewhere in the Middle East. And relocation is not the same thing as stopping the war. So he tried to create the illusion of, oh, I'm just doing this because, uh, and his rhetoric was absolutely correct. He said, "Um, we can't stay there forever. We can't have this endless war forever. We don't have an objective. Like what is the end goal? When when do we say mission accomplished? And that is absolutely correct. But what he actually did was the exact opposite. He kept the troops there. He sent more troops in there and he's planning on sending even more troops into the Middle East. All right. So we've increased our troop presence in the Middle East with no clear new objective. So why the heck is he going against all of his rhetoric to keep and increase our troop presence? Well, what's interesting is that the quiet part that no Republican that has been a warmonger, and I mean, honestly, a few Democrats as well, Mm -hmm. uh, have said is 
we're there for the oil. Mm -hmm. It's so obvious that that's why we're there, but that's the part that people just, they know it, but they don't say it out loud. Hmm. Except for Trump, which, I mean, I guess you got to give him credit for at least for being the first Republican war hawk to straight up admit, oh, we're there for the oil. We're there to uh, keep the oil. But he's actually straight up admitted that even after he did announce his decision to pull troops back from the Kurdish held territory in Syria, he said, quote, he plans on keeping the oil in Syria and then using American troops to do it, which, by the way, is a war crime. Yeah. Under Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention in 1907, pillaging is not allowed. You can't pillage. Yeah, but like certainly pillaging is like chickens and jewelry and swords and stuff. You no, can't pillage. If you, if you use your oil. military in a sovereign country to steal their resources, and look, look, I'm not saying that Syria is the are the good guys here. I'm not saying that like Assad is in any way uh, a victim, but it's still a war crime. It is still not allowed under the Geneva Convention. And. The interesting thing, another like really interesting thing here is that the themes at play in this particular action, removing troops from like Kurdish support, allocating them to the short-term fiscal interests of the United States, is a theme that has presided over Trump's foreign policy throughout his administration. And it's it's one of the major things that I think divides the conclusions of his rhetoric from the like reasons of pr the progressives making like similar points and with similar conclude like similar conclusions so like you consistently are seeing him sell our allies you know like like trying to put pressure on allies because they're not like economic powerhouses for us so we can get oil and putting like really crippling like um tariffs and sanctions on you know brazil and argentina and countries in the eu and canada who are our allies and we have like open trade agreements with so that we can each benefit just so that like we can like show our might and have some short-term economic gains so like consistently he is putting the like trade policies ahead of like foreign policies and stability and our allies are getting sick of it yeah there's actually a major sect of the alt-right that strongly agrees with the notion of stopping endless wars. Now, the reason for it, in a lot of ways, differs from that of progressives. Yeah, Progressives want to stop the endless wars because, you know, we're killing people. Uh, a lot of people in the alt-right want us to stop endless wars because uh, of the principle of isolationism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, people of the rest of the world should be left to fend for themselves. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I would say that there needs to be, we should be working for diplomatic solutions and we should fight with things like yeah. sanctions, yeah. but we shouldn't be fighting with troops. We should do everything we can to stop these endless wars because they don't have, like, no one has explained when is the mission accomplished? Mm -hmm. Like, at what point have we done all we can no one has no one has given us that metric so 
the, the longer we stay in there, the more we destabilize the area. Yes, I do think that we should have a, we should draw up a plan to get out there that doesn't involve like sending out a tweet and saying, okay, <laughs> pulling out now, we're good, we're good. Yeah. There needs to be a, an exit strategy, but we got to start that as soon as possible. Yeah, and the difference in reasoning you can see play out in the strategy. When you care about the stability of a region, when you care about peacekeeping, supporting your allies, creating a stronger international order, stronger international cooperation, you're, you go out into the world and you work on diplomacy. You act as a leader in character as well as policy. But when you don't care about those things, when what you care about is just, you know, short-term gain and getting out as quickly as possible and appealing like your alt-right base, you go for the pull the rug out from under everybody strategy, which we've seen again and again and has hurt us again and again. And it's funny, at this like recent NATO summit, the 70th anniversary of one of the most important peacekeeping organizations in the world, um, people got like, like you saw, I'm sure you saw the video of Trudeau and Macron and Boris Johnson like joking about Trump. And the reality is like, they're biding their time and waiting for him to get out of there so that they can deal with an adult again. And honestly, like maybe it's, it might be doing them some good a little bit. They're mm-hmm. having to rely. They're like re- recognizing that they can't rely on the United States because they can't rely on Trump. And so, you know, we've gone from four countries satisfying the 2% of GDP, uh, as like their defense spending as part of like the NATO agreement to seven, which is still not great out of 29, but, an improvement. Yeah. And I would just like to point out that when you got Boris frickin' Johnson waiting for an adult <laughs> to come into the room, you know you got beyond a clown in the White House. Yeah. But again, it's this like short-sightedness and childishness that really undermines our very important foreign policy. Like most of the things we talked about are like cross the aisle bipartisan issues that Trump has just refused to support because of his short-term agenda. Um, He's vetoed, he vetoed the bill to get us out of the Saudi-led war in Yemen, even though that was a bipartisan bill that would have done nothing but good. Yeah, it had support from both sides of the aisle. So the reality is that like, you'll hear a lot of the same kind of things. This can be a really powerful bipartisan issue going forward, but it's all in the execution and that's what we need to be looking for. All right, time for one of our uh, more positive segments, Tips for Good. All right, so yeah, as, as a reminder, like we like to come to you every week to talk about something good that you can do and keep in mind as you work your way through the world uh, that can make the world a little bit of a better place. And so today we want to talk to you um, about just like how to interact with service dogs when you meet them in public. They are some of the cutest little animals that you're ever going to run into, and they're so well-behaved, and they have their vests. Um, (laughs) But it's really important that when you interact with a service dog, you do so appropriately. So, Nathan, why don't you tell us about, like, how people should act and maybe some of your own experiences? Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, uh, I actually do have a service dog. I am accompanied by a beautiful yellow lab named Blake. And she is adorable. She is absolutely adorable. And 
And very professional. Yeah, and very professional. And as much as I understand how cute she is, it annoys people with service dogs to no end when you distract their dogs. So I just want to talk about three ways that you can change the way that you might act around service dogs to just make life significantly easier for service dog owners. Because remember, they have a job to do that they're specifically you know, tasked with. And dogs, while being very intelligent, are not the best prioritizers in the world. And so every every moment you take away from that dog is a moment that they can't aid um, aid their responsibility. They can't execute their responsibility. Yeah. So number one is to consider the fact that the do not pet me rule, the do not pet service dogs rule, that's not to torture you. That's so you don't distract the dog. I got a lot of people that come up to my dog, put their hands behind their back, shove their face in my dog's face, and are like, puppy, 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 I'm not supposed to pet you. It's like, yes, you're not supposed to pet her, but if you're distracting her, then you're kind of defeating the purpose. So that's number one. Number two, know which questions you can and cannot ask. So if you're a business, there are two questions that you're allowed to ask. Number one, is that a service dog? Number two, what actions does your service dog perform for you? You cannot ask what the person's disability is. You cannot ask them to perform one of the actions. Those are the two questions that you're allowed to ask. And if you work for someone who is a business owner and they're not aware of this, Say you're working in a restaurant or a shop and someone comes in with a service dog and the owner asks you to ask them to leave. Go ahead and tell them that you're not going to violate the American Disabilities Act yeah. and do that. Yeah. And just maybe remind them that that uh, they don't have the right to do that and the person with the service dog is protected. Yeah. And number three, uh, if you're not a business, if you want to inquire about the service dog, ask questions about the service dog, at least do it at a time that is clearly not inconvenient for the person with a service dog. Like most people with service dogs, when they're going into a store, a grocery store, and they just want to buy their items and get the hell out, uh, they don't really want to get caught up in a conversation about their service dog. Um, so maybe if you're like, if you're standing in a grocery line and there's a person with a service dog is right in front of you and you, you want to ask, where's your service dog from? Uh, or something like that. I don't have a problem with that when people do that for me, but if I'm, say, standing at a urinal and you're asking me, hey, what kind of dog is that? I'm going to be like, a uh, urinal. I didn't know that was the kind of dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, that has actually happened. People have asked me that question while I've been standing in front of a urinal. So if you're going to be asking questions about the dogs, just please do it at least at a convenient time or better yet. Just, just let look the, it up on the internet. Yeah. Look it up on the internet. <laughs> if you want to know what kind of dog it is, look at some pictures of dogs until you find a similar one. Google exists. Cause the reality is like, you know, I've seen so many people walk up to Nathan when he's been with Blake and you know, it's like the only beings that they're aware of are themselves and the dog. And it's like, oh, no, no. There is the one most important person in this interaction that you're leaving out. Yeah. And that's another thing. Like, sometimes individuals with service dogs do feel like they're being erased. Because dogs you, are really cute. Dogs are really and cute. And with the but exception if, of Nathan, you know, they may not be as cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Aww. <laughs> that was a compliment. It, it took me a second. It took me like I had to I had to work through the negatives in my head of like, oh sure. wait, that, oh I appreciate that. Thank you. Um so yeah, that's tips for good. All right, so next up, we are going to be giving you an update on my very favorite topic I always love when I see it on the agenda. Impeachment. Yep. We haven't talked about impeachment for two weeks. And oh my I got to say, it's been so nice. Yeah, best two weeks of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so first, we'll give you an update on kind of where things are in the process. Um, and you may not have seen like a ton of news because a lot of the bombshells have been dropped and now it's kind of the process of checking the boxes and, you know, doing the paperwork and all that. Yeah. Um, there's still some interesting stuff coming out of it. So Nathan, where are we now? Well, at this point we are almost ready to draft the articles of impeachment. Mm -hmm. The main categories have already basically been decided on and the judiciary community has gotten to work on actually drafting the articles of impeachment. There are three main categories that they're focusing on. And we're just going to break down each of them for you, discuss some of the arguments for and against them, and uh, give our own sort of final thoughts about them. So number one is abuse of power and bribery. Number two is obstruction of Congress. And number three is obstruction of justice. So let's start by talking about the more obvious one, the thing that started this entire process Abuse of power and bribery. So, in Nancy Pelosi's word, the president abused his power for his own personal political benefit at the expense of our national security by withholding military aid and crucial Oval, and crucial Oval Office meeting in exchange for an announcement of an investigation into his political rival. So, to put this in context, this is the Ukraine gate Ukraine impeachment stuff that you've been hearing about. Notice this is one of the three um, grounds for impeachment that the Judiciary Committee is drafting. Um, so this is Trump speaking to President Zelensky um, and withholding military aid, withholding a diplomatic meeting um, until they announced a public investigation into Hunter Biden. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the shift in rhetoric of quid pro quo to bribery in the, la the last time we talked about impeachment, but it's becoming a bit more apparent in this process. They've had several uh, law professors come in and kind of explain a little bit about bribery. Now, there are a few things of note that they have explained. First off, it's kind of tough to judge exactly what the founding fathers meant when they put bribery into the articles or into a, a, the article about impeachment, because there wasn't really much of a point of reference to create a legal definition of bribery at the time, because up until that point, the main chief executive had been kings. And I mean, kings can do whatever the hell they want you know, they're kings. Um, and they didn't have any presidents, so obviously there wasn't a precedent for that. Um, in fact, the first legal definition of bribery that they pointed to referred to customs. Hmm. Yeah. 
and it's important. So the reason they've switched to the bribery language is for a couple reasons. One, it's actually called out in the Constitution. But to Nathan's point, there's some argument over whether that is necessarily necessarily applicable and what exactly the definition would be. Um, and the other reason is just to make it more accessible, I think, as they communicate it um, to the public. Now, I am not a legal scholar. I don't even play one on TV. <laughs> yeah, I don't even pretend to be a legal scholar. Um, but the idea that we have to go back to like the minds of the founding fathers in order to understand how we should consider um, like the Constitution today is not really the way that like proper jurisprudence is done like that's like the originalist perspective but like the more common perspective on jurisprudence is that you in, interpret it in um a way that makes sense with um the uh, what's called stare decisis or like the the supreme court's history of jurisprudence and decision making now it's a little bit challenging in this case because we don't have um you know, jurisprudence surrounding like what this means, but it's almost certainly clear that the founding fathers meant some kind of exchange of goods where you, as a president, are exchanging, um, or you are, you are exchanging an execution of your power in exchange for something that benefits you. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and before, before we get more into that, there is one analogy that, um, professor Pamela Carlin brought up that I think actually puts this into perspective in in a way that I think a lot of Americans will have a much easier time understanding. So I think that a lot of people don't can't fully grasp exactly the significance of withholding that military aid from Ukraine and why it's so like why it was so wrong for Trump to use his powers to do that. So she uses the analogy of say a hurricane hits Louisiana. And the governor of Louisiana goes to the federal government and says, hey, I need some disaster aid. I need to clean up my state. And then Trump tells that governor, okay, I'll give you that disaster aid. But first, you got to start digging into my political opponent. And you got to announce an investigation into my political opponent. Now, if that happened, universally, people would just be in uproar. That's a similar abuse of power just on a foreign government that Trump has committed in this case. So the main arguments against bribery at this point, I think, are really weak and really dumb. Yeah, it seems so. First of all, like to that example, you know, in that case, he would be he would be betraying the citizens of Louisiana and their interests yeah. in order to get something of value personally. And he's literally doing the exact same thing now because we're not just talking about, you know, we're not just talking about a country that doesn't impact us, doesn't help us at all. We're talking about a country that could that is a key player in our relationship with the hostile power of Russia. And so like providing them with military aid has a, a almost direct benefit to the United States. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the idea that like bribery is so opaque that we can't really understand it in the proper sense is really 
quite surprising to me. So Noah Feldman, a professor of uh, at Harvard Law School, um, called out that you know bribery has actually a clear meaning to the framers. Quote, it was when the president, using the power of his office, solicits or receives something of personal value from someone affected by his powers. So there's that conflict of interest. There's that overt power structure. Um, and bribery itself, like in the modern context, as well as a historical one, is a pretty simple thing. It's exactly that structure. Um, and so, again, the GOP is falling back on arguments about process, arguments about hair splitting, and it's it's certainly not clear to me that this would fall out of bounds. And ultimately, even if the precise meaning of bribery doesn't apply, certainly this is undermining of our confidence in our president. So one of the witnesses that the GOP called in these hearings Jonathan Turley from George Washington University Law School actually called out in an op-ed piece in 2014, quote, while there's a high bar for what constitutes grounds for impeachment, an offense does not have to be indictable. Serious misconduct or violation of public trust is enough. And the founders emphasized that impeachments were about what happened in the political arena, involving political crimes and misdemeanors and resulting in political punishments. So that was an op-ed from 2014, which is like a direct uh, contradiction from the testimony he gave last week. But you, you can see the emphasis that it's not about hair splitting. It is about um, doing what's best for the country yeah. and identifying the motivations and confidence that you have in your executive. Well, it's about the, the principle of abusing power. Yeah, exactly. Uh, abuse of power. Um, he actually tries to... He actually tries to claim that this couldn't constitute bribery because bribery is about an exchange of money. That's so... That's so dumb. That, that is so crazy. That's, that's a terrible argument. Uh, not, even, not even campaign finance law. It's a complete law. red herring. Finance law about money restricts um, violations to, to money exclusively. It is things of value. And that is clearly the case in any... Yeah. Context where you're talking about abuse of power. Yeah, or we're talking about things of value. Also, he even argues um, that uh, he doesn't think he he doesn't see proof of quid pro quo. Which let's consider the fact that McMulvaney admitted it on national television. That Gordon Sondland uh, admitted it. Who is not a never Trumper? Who is a Trump surrogate? A Trump donor? Uh, who then turned on Trump when he decided, hey, I probably shouldn't go to jail for perjury. Um, as well as several other witnesses that have come forward. So he doesn't see any evidence of quid pro quo. There is a mountain of evidence within the Trump administration specifically. So that's a terrible argument. So as it stands, most of the arguments against bribery, even the best ones that this guy came up with are terrible. So he called, he had a few other arguments that I think it's probably good good for us to call out um, pretty quickly. One was just that um, he's worried that we don't have enough evidence, and so we're lowering the bar for precedent for impeaching a president. Um, Considering which, like, the fact that Bill Clinton was impeached exactly for having a an affair, I'd say the bar is already pretty goddamn low. Yeah. When, so when he so Turley also testified 
during because he is a constitutional scholar. Let's not that's not there's no two ways about it. Um, he also testified during the Clinton impeachment hearing in 1998 when he said, while the Senate can decide not to remove a president in the interests of the nation for a variety of reasons, he said that the House should not falter in maintaining a bright line for presidential conduct. So he's saying, so as a reminder, there are a couple parts to the impeachment process. So while you get impeached by the House, um, you you can only be removed from office by the Senate. So the House draws up the articles of impeachment and votes on it. If they pass, they go to the Senate for them to conduct hearings as to whether the president should be removed. And they need a two-thirds vote in order to pass in the Senate and just a simple majority in the House. Exactly. And so his point in the 1998 case uh, of Clinton was that the House should be the measure of what we expect from our president. And the Senate could then make determinations about political importance and expediency and whether you know, removal would be the right remedy. But the point is that the House needs to be the lowest bar we're willing to accept. And apparently he was willing to accept the bar of got a blowjob and lied about it, but not used his powers to solicit help from a foreign government to interfere with our election. Hence the flip-flop. <laughs> and exactly. So so our emphasis here is that we have this constitutional scholar who's given multiple testimonies and th throughout his time arguing from a particular point of view. When I guess his preferred candidate or something along those lines shifts, he changes his opinion. That seems a lot like a flip-flop because he's offered no reasoning yeah. Uh, aside from the reason he offered for the exact opposite position previously. And the last point that I want to make on this before we quickly discuss obstruction of Congress is Bill Clinton, again, I keep coming back to this, he was impeached for having an affair. Not a high crime or a misdemeanor. He, he had, well, well, the crime... Perjury, was, I know. Yeah, the crime <laughs> was perjury. But like the big thing was, oh, he, he had an affair and he lied about it. And at the time... Republicans were perfectly willing to throw the country through an impeachment process. Now, Trump, on the other hand, he has repeatedly violated the emoluments clause to the extent that could actually be argued influenced his decision to veto a bill that would have ended the Saudi-led genocide in Yemen. There were at least 10 counts of obstruction of justice outlined in the Mueller report which are also impeachable. There is the fact that his un uh, that he is an unindicted co-conspirator uh, in a campaign violation in, in a campaign finance violation to which his co-conspirator is currently in prison. He solicited help from a foreign government to take down a pr political rival in exchange for giving um, giving them aid, and he cheated on his wife. And Republicans are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, these Democrats, they're just putting the country through this unnecessary division. They're the bad guys. They're just they're just doing the process because they're trying to overrule an election. Republicans were perfectly willing to impeach Bill Clinton for a blowjob and lying about it and lying about it. And Trump has done all of that and way more. And they're pretending to be the victims and the good guys. It is so frustrating. And so now we'll quickly go through the last two grounds for impeachment uh, that the House is drawing up. Yeah. 
So the first one is obstruction of Congress. And this one is very simple. There are a lot of key witnesses uh, like the chief of staff, uh, Mick Mulvaney, and the energy secretary, uh, Rick Perry, who have been subpoenaed by the House uh, and who Trump has directed them not to testify and thus they violated the subpoena. Um, which a violation of a subpoena is, uh, they're arguing it's obstruction of Congress, and it could potentially constitute another impeachable offense. Now, real quick, the argument against that is the fact that uh, Trump is trying to challenge that subpoena in the Supreme Court in order to uh, keep them from testifying. And the argument that Turley made was basically that, well, there's a third branch of government to be involved in this, and he points to the fact that uh, with Nixon, it did go to the courts and he lost and he resigned because the Supreme Court ruled that he did have to um, he did have to give the additional files and details about the Watergate scandal. Um, so the argument then is, well, we got to wait until it goes to the Supreme Court um, and they rule whether or not uh, this uh, whether or not the subpoenas were justified. And then if Trump violates it, then that could be an impeachable offense, which, so I feel like there's some legitimacy. There might be some legitimacy to that argument. If nothing else, he is at least laying out a defeasibility test. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not a legal scholar again, but to some degree, I'm convinced by that argument. I, yeah. I am convinced by the separation of powers aspect of it um, and the fact that executive um, privilege of information is uh, a really important, um, not just a norm, but like a, a fixture of the executive part of our government. And I don't think that because the process of going through the courts would be basically long enough to make the point moot, that it that that's like a good argument against it. Well, so like I, it's unlikely that that will be decided honestly that before I'm, that I'm, we that... get close to the, the election. Well, that I would say, like, well, it's not about being close to the election. It's about being close to the impeachment trial itself. So I think that there is credence to, to one argument against that argument, which is the fact that Trump isn't trying to necessarily put us through uh, the courts. Like, there, he's not trying to do that for any sort of legitimacy. He's trying to do that so that by the time the articles of impeachment have already been put yeah, forth and that. the trial is over in the Senate— um, they will not have been required to go and testify. I think that that is a potential that is a potential uh, counterpoint to that. Uh, also, there's the fact that he's invoking executive privilege mm -hmm. on a personal matter. Yeah, yeah. Which that could be an argument for the courts to decide. But mm -hmm. I anyway, this particular one, I'm not sure exactly how to feel, but I do respect the fact that he at least puts out a defeasibility test. Mm -hmm. Um, and the final article. Uh, will focus on uh, obstruction of justice. Uh, and this would be specifically laying out five instances noted in the Mueller probe, namely um, the president ordering uh, Don McGahn to fire Mueller, which McGahn declined to. Uh, McGahn creating a, f uh, ordering McGahn to create a false written uh, record denying that the president had ordered Mueller to be removed. The meeting between President Trump and former campaign manager Corey Lewandowski to take steps to have the investigation curtailed, 
witness tampering, and dangling pardons for former campaign chairman Paul Manafort, who is now serving prison time for uh, financial crimes, and Michael, po- Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer. I thought that these should have been added from the beginning. However, I do recognize the fact that Democrats kind of wasted their political capital on this. Yeah. Bill Barr came out and he gave his extremely, uh, his major oversimplification of the Mueller report. Very favorable to Trump. Which was completely a false representation. And then when Mueller came out with the actual report itself, or when when the actual report itself came out, uh, Democrats were just like, oh, well, I guess we already lost it because uh, uh, Barr did that thing, so we're not going to go for impeachment. And that kind of told the rest of the country, oh, well, I guess if even the Democrats don't think that was impeachable, then, you know, we're okay, which that just shows you how weak a lot of uh, a lot of elected Democrats often are and how weak Democratic leadership often is, because that is something that they could have easily used. And the fact that they didn't makes it seem at this point to be just, oh, well, let's throw out a wide net. Let's throw a bunch of crap at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And it lends credence to the argument of you're not actually trying to uh, impeach Trump because he's a criminal. You're trying to do that because you don't like him and it's going to politically advantage you. And they could have they could have just communicated all of this like so much better. The strategy like and maybe they weren't like actively biding their time to wait for Trump to make his to do his next crime. I don't know why they wouldn't be because like he's obviously coming down the pipe at some point. But um (laughs) You know, maybe they weren't just waiting for it, but they could have like said, you know, something to the American people to the effect of, you know, we think this is enough. We think there's more out there. Yeah. You know, they got Al Capone on tax evasion, but <laughs> and we're going to get Trump on more than obstruction of justice. Yeah. You know, like something they could have said something, but yeah. instead they just gave it away. And now you're right. It seems kind of weak. Yeah. Not that I don't think that they shouldn't be bringing this stuff up now. It should all be But in I there. do have concerns that they might have wasted some political capital when they didn't pursue it to begin with. Yeah, lost a lot of momentum, I think. So let's stop talking about impeachment. Oh, hallelujah. And now time for our favorite segment of the week. Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan... Who's our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week, crazy mothers. Um, what? Crazy mothers. You can't talk about my mama like that. No, Michael. So Crazy Mothers is actually an entire organization. It is an organization of anti-vaxxers. Mmm, my favorite. But apparently, they don't want to be called anti-vaxxers. So this week, we wanted to dedicate this asshat award to an ideology that does so much physical harm to the world. And I want to focus in on this, this recent, uh, this recent social media post that crazy mothers made where they said that they want us to retire the use of the word anti-vaxxer. They said, It is derogatory, inflammatory, 
and marginalizes both women and their experiences. It is dismissively simplistic, highly offensive, and largely false. Now, this is not a super strong point, but this is coming from an organization called Crazy Mothers. By the way, it's a legitimate organization. Like, this is not a parody account. This is a legitimate organization yeah. that is dedicated to being a bunch of anti-vaxxers. Yeah, because playing on the, you know, counterculture idea of, like, women being crazy and mothers being crazier is not at all counterproductive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, we, yeah, we we, like... So, first of all, there are potentially some reasons why an individual might not have their kid vaccinated, like allergies. Yeah. That's pretty much the one. Yeah. There aren't studied other risks, or there aren't risks that have been proven that are caused by vaccines. And in fact, those people, the allergy, the, the kids that have allergies, people that have allergies, they're the reason why... If you decide not to vaccinate your child, you are putting the populace at risk. Exactly. You see, there's this thing called herd immunity, which people that can't get vaccinations due to some kind of allergy, they depend on herd immunity in order to say it's safe. So if you have enough people vaccinated, for all intents and purposes, the virus just dies out because yeah. it can't jump from person to person. But the more people that are not vaccinated, the more likely you are to spread it to another person who may be allergic to it. Furthermore, the more people have a virus, the more it might mutate and cause certain vaccines to be obsolete. When you decide not to vaccinate your child, you are putting not just your child at risk, but you are putting everybody else's child, everybody else's children at risk. We almost completely got rid of measles. Almost. And now it's back in full force, and it's killing kids all around the world. There were multiple outbreaks last year, not, and not just like in third world countries, which you should care about just as much as everywhere else. Yeah. But like in the Western world, there were outbreaks of measles in 2018 and yeah. 2019. So what is this? So. We wanted to just take this opportunity to recognize how uniquely heinous it is to base an entire movement on a debunked study that had like, I, th I think it was like maybe 10 kids in it, like as their, uh, as their actual, um, he's, he's referencing the study, the, the Wakefield study. Yeah. Link, uh, that purported to link autism with yeah vaccines. it had like i don't remember the exact number but it had very few actual uh, uh participants in the study they put them through a bunch of unethical tests that is often hauled up at, uh, held up as a perfect representation of unethical studies in classes like as like as a textbook uh thing that you should not do it's been debunked by study after study after study after study after study that have tried to find that link and have not found that link. Now, you can try to tell me, oh, well, Nathan, here is some random-ass testimony from some random-ass person who worked for some random-ass uh, uh, pharmaceutical company who is saying, oh, uh, actually, vaccines are kind of dangerous. That's a testimony. Link me to a study, and I'll take a look at it. But until you can link me to that study, vaccines... First off, they don't cause autism, and even if they did, 
would you rather your kid be dead or like me? Like, uh, seriously, that is a super insulting attitude to have towards the autistic community to begin with. So you are demonizing autistics, you are putting kids at risk, and now this group is acting like the victim. So... So congratulations to uh, the Crazy Mothers group. For being uh, our Ass Hat of, of the, the Week. week. All right, so now we're going to move on to one of our favorite reoccurring topics, uh, focusing on primary news. And so. this actually is one of our favorite reoccurring topics because it is issue-focused and it is imagining a world in which Donald Trump is not the president. Yeah. You know that that things. world actually existed four years ago? Hey, according to some uh, quantum theorists, it exists even now. We just can't access it, and it's in many other dimensions. Well... Show us how to access it. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. You got to make the quantum leaps and stuff. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> so the big news, well, part of uh, one big piece of news is there was a pretty top tier candidate who dropped out. Uh, Kamala Harris is out of the race. And I want to just take a second to talk a little bit about her rise and fall, why she was ultimately a failed candidate. Uh, and also discuss some of the things that some mainstream media outlets have been trying to say, oh, this is why she failed and why that's bullcrap. So when she first started, she spent a lot of time bragging about the fact that she was one of the first co-sponsors to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. And at several points, she, when she was asked, what is your policy on health care? She answered point blank. Medicare for all. I am for Medicare for all. And let's not forget that there were four Democratic candidates during the first debate that raised their hands when the moderators asked who would get rid of private insurance. Bill de Blasio, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Kamala Harris. And then she kind of like after that debate, she soared in the polls like, she was in—she became a top-tier candidate. She was in the 15%. Yeah, she topped out at 15%, which and, is, like, where—almost where Warren is now. And during that night, she eviscerated Joe Biden. I mm -hmm. mean, it was, like—I remember looking—watching that and just thinking, um, Joe Biden's done. Now, I was wrong about that, but still, she really hurt Joe Biden in that— uh, in that debate and it was actually present in his polling numbers where his polling numbers went down and hers shot up so she was a strong issue focused hard-hitting progressive fighting candidate that everybody thought was like gonna be like the next like the female obama and beat trump and all that well not even the female obama because like obama in a lot of ways was a centrist yeah um a lot of people were saying she is going to be, she's a prosecutor. She's going to be able to prosecute the case against Donald Trump. And she is a progressive on all of these issues that progressives care a lot about. And she was really good at knowing exactly what progressives wanted to hear. And from the beginning, uh, I was a little bit suspicious of her. Like, because of her record, because of how recently she had flipped on Medicare for All, she had only recently started being for it once it started being popular. And then she kind of walked back her stance in the debate a little bit. And then she walked it back some more. And then the second debate happened in which Tulsi Gabbard 
suicide bombed her. And then she completely walked back on Medicare for all and, you know, proposed this really milquetoast Medicare plan. And then what happened to her poll numbers? They shot down. Yeah, when she left the race, she was around 3% or so. Yeah. So a lot of the mainstream media has been saying, oh, well, of course she dropped out because she was too progressive. Like she she lost her uh, numbers because she was too progressive. No, it happened as soon as she started to turn against it and people started to see her for the chameleon she was. And some other outlets are bringing up, and she actually, she actually brought up the fact that she is a uh, woman of color. And she said that that had something to do with it. Now, what I would say about that is, I'm not going to say that it's not a factor, or at least that it's not a factor in how forgiving the public is of her. I think that Pete Buttigieg has done just as much, if not more, flip-flopping on uh, how progressive he pretended to be at the beginning of this race and how famously centrist he is now. And I do think that it is possible that... Part of the reason why everybody's been so much more forgiving of him is because he is a white man. I think that that's absolutely possible. But Kamala Harris was soaring in the polls for a while, and it wasn't because people thought she was a white man. It's not like they found out she was a black woman, and suddenly they were like, oh, wait, Kamala Harris is a is a black woman? It's not a white man? Oh, well, I don't support her anymore. No, that's not what happened. It happened after the debate and after she switched all of her views. Yeah, it happened after she started undermining her message by flip-flopping and undermining her narrative as a progressive and strong candidate. Yeah. So, it was a strategic problem. So uh, we'll see where what happens after this if someone tries to um, pin her as a, a potential VP or if she tries to uh, campaign for anybody. Um, but importantly, she did end on a uniting message that uh, she would continue to work tirelessly to beat Trump, um, and she didn't fail to take a, sh- to, a stab at uh, the really wealthy people self-funding their campaigns when she said, uh, I'm not a billionaire. I can't fund my own campaign, Yeah, citing that she was running out of money for her reason for dropping out. Now, that being said, her campaign is... Funded by plenty of billionaires. Yeah. In fact, she actually, uh, according to Forbes... Um, she actually had more individual donations from billionaires than any other candidate. Uh, 46 billionaires and billionaire and spouses of billionaires have donated to her campaign, which is more than anybody else in the field. So it's kind of a fake populist message for her to have said that. But there goes Kamala Harris. But that seems like the most consistent thing about her campaign anyway. Yeah. So let's talk about Pete Buttigieg. I'd love to. What about him? Pete Buttigieg has, and by the way, I would just like to point out, when we did our podcast, Breaking Down the Democratic Debate, I said that he was going to benefit the most from it. Remember that? I said that his poll numbers were going to go significantly up. Mm -hmm. Now, not because I thought he did well, but because I thought the people that he needed to take votes from did very poorly. I said he was going to go up, and I was absolutely correct. He did go up. Um, And he's actually considered a top-tier candidate now. So... 
There's one thing that I want to specifically focus on with Pete Buttigieg, and that is his college plan. So he has come out against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's plan of free college tuition for all. And I want to talk specifically about the argument that he's using in order to make that point and how he's trying to frame his objectively less progressive plan as actually being the more progressive plan. So his argument is that because Bernie Sanders's and Elizabeth Warren's uh, free college tuition plan are universal, that it's a plan that would require middle-class families to subsidize rich people's kids in their college uh, endeavors. So the thought there is just that as a universal plan, it would benefit all recipients of the plan equally. Yeah. Or maybe not equally, but it would it would benefit all recipients of the plan. Yeah. And so that would be taking tax money from people that are paying into the plan, i.e. middle class and everybody. Yeah. And spreading it around and actually providing some more to really wealthy people that don't need any. Yeah. So that's his thinking. So there are several issues with that. First off, there's one incredibly dishonest point that he makes where he's like, I don't think that we should be paying for that. We, middle class families should be paying for millionaires and billionaires kids to go to college. Let's look at what his actual plan is. His actual plan uh, would pay for the four year college of families that earn a hundred thousand per year or less. So the cutoff is a hundred thousand per year. Now, I'm no mathematician, but 100,000 is less than a million. So That's some solid math. Yeah. So basically, if you have a family where uh, there are two moneymakers, and each of them are making approximately $50,000, or I guess a little bit over $50,000, they don't get that free college tuition. And let's let and now to be fair, this does make make uh colleges tuition free for 80% of American students. But if he's framing it as this will keep millionaires and billionaires from taking advantage of uh middle class people, but he starts it at a hundred thousand, that's a dishonest. That that's just a, a completely dishonest point to make. Yeah, there is a whole swath of up middle class and upper middle class people that would still be burdened with the tremendous amount of money that it costs to go to college. Um, and while his plan does provide for people a little bit for people that make between a hundred and a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, like a household um, that makes that much, it, it provides that on a prorated basis. So it wouldn't be free for those people, but it would be it would come at a decreased cost. But let's think about it. Like four-year college um, today could easily cost at a, at a minimum like twenty-five grand a year. So, in order to not take on significant debt as a student, you'd have to take a quarter of your family's income in order to pay for your college. Yeah, that's untenable. Yeah, exactly. So that bar seems too low. Yeah, and one thing that I do want to be clear about before we continue is. This would be better than what we have now. 
absolutely, no doubt, 100%, it would be better than what we have right now. But it is not better than the plan by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, both on principle and in practice. First off, let's think about the fact, let's look at other universal programs. Social Security. Social Security has stood the political popularity tides of time because it is a universal program. It does benefit everyone. Now, on principle, I feel like if he was uh, trying to make uh, if he was trying to make a principled stance that wasn't just a let's try to change the status quo as little as possible, that he would also have to say, well, then we should uh, end Social Security for people that make a hundred thousand or over just for the sake of intellectual honesty. Also, let's not forget the fact that public schools, you know, perhaps a, a more analogous um, example, public schools are still a universal system. So I would be very curious to ask him if he is for making it so that that is no longer a universal system, so that people who make 100000 per year uh, or more that they have to pay for public education. And let's also point out the fact that a lot of rich families don't even send their kids to uh, public school, they uh, to public colleges. They send them to private colleges because they got a bunch of money they can afford to. Yeah, and they're, they're, this plan would specifically provide for subsidies and free college for public colleges exclusively um, and other like publicly funded programs. But let's also focus on like the language of like progressivism versus regressivism, because on the surface, like two people that have significantly different wealth getting a similar benefit could seem to some a little regressive. But the reality is that like what what we're going for and something that can be truly progressive is providing a higher base level. We talk about like safety net in terms of like retirement income and healthcare and things like that, because that is a new higher floor than there was before. And that really is the case. That's the aim here as well. We are looking for a new higher level to American education. The progressiveness comes from the fact that we are aiming to pr like provide progress for our whole society. It's not progressive in the same sense as progressive taxes where they get progressively higher. It's progressive in the sense of creating progress for our society, benefiting everyone by raising the bar for everyone. Yeah. And let's also not forget about the fact that uh, by the virtue of the way that the taxes will be a progressive rate, rich families are going to be paying significantly more into the system than lower middle class families. So the idea that we're the ones that are going to be subsidizing them is also an intellectually dishonest point to make. Yeah, that's a good point. So again, you've heard this in some previous episodes of ours. This is, an, again, a case of a um, participant in the primary, a Democratic candidate, who is responding um, to non-substantive arguments in the zeitgeist. They're, they're responding to qualms that aren't intellectually honest. And instead of clarifying the um, point of intellectual dishonesty, uh, which is basically the point that it would be less progressive to have a universal system. Um, instead of clarifying that and trying to argue for like the best possible outcome, they're taking advantage of that and trying to use it as a wedge to um, bring down more progressive candidates. Uh, and we've seen that a couple times with different programs, um, but definitely something to be 
you know, aware of as you go about reading through these different plans. And also just a plug, definitely like if you have a question about a plan, start by just like going to the candidate's website. They often like they have a section where you can just go to issues and you can find the exact issue that you're curious about. And they start off usually by talking about why it's important. And then they start off and then they go through talking about their plan. And for the most part, they also talk about how they're going to pay for it. So if you have that question, the answers tend to be out there. And if they're not on the candidate's website, that's a that should raise a red flag. Yeah, exactly. That's a big question mark. Um, and so, you know, I definitely encourage all of you to do that. All right. Let's finish it off with one final point to make, which is a, uh, very interesting poll that came out very recently, and that is the fact that Bernie Sanders is ahead in California, according to the last UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies poll. Now, he's only up by like 2%, so well within the margin of error, but California is a major powerhouse, and he did not win California in 2016. And it is a early state this time around. So while Joe Biden does certainly still have a lot of momentum in national polls, Bernie Sanders is actually doing pretty well in a lot of the earlier polls, particularly in New Hampshire. So if you are a Bernie supporter, as I am, there is absolutely a path in which if he does well in the early states, that could give him momentum throughout the rest of the election, which, I mean, that's how Obama was able to get the nomination in 2008. It was by winning Iowa and proving to people, hey, this guy might actually have a chance. And on a national level, here's where the polling averages are sitting right now, according to the Real Clear Politics average. December 7th. Uh, Biden's at 28. Sanders is at 15.7. Warren's sitting at 14, uh, which is a pretty stark decline from where she's been over the past couple of weeks. And then Buttigieg is at 10.8. And then the next runner-up is currently Bloomberg, actually, at 4.5. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. He might be padding those poll numbers. we got to stop and frisk him. <laughs> All right. And so with that, we'll move on to our one of our favorites and final segment highlights. So Nathan, what are your highlights this week? Well, uh, this last week was the final persuasive speeches for my university students. And once again, they were awesome. I was really proud of them. I was really happy to see a bunch of young people talk about issues that were, they were very passionate about. I really appreciated seeing it. And also... Uh, because it was the end of the semester, I told them about our podcast. So, hey, if any of my students are listening, really proud of you, uh, and welcome to the Respectrum. <laughs> what about you, Michael? So my highlight, uh, I went up to New York City this past weekend, and I went to, so I got to see, you know, my family. I got to hang out with my brother and sister-in-law, which was great, and I got to go to this Christmas party that was a tradition when I was growing up. We would go every year. And I, I saw a lot of people that I hadn't seen in like at least eight or nine years. And it was so cool catching up, hanging out as an adult with all these kids that I used to like literally play hide and seek with at this Christmas party. It was just a super jolly time. It really got me into the Christmas spirit. 
and so, yeah, that's my highlight. Nice, nice. All right, we will, I mean, I guess you will listen to us next week, unless you don't, in which case you should reevaluate your life decisions. And yeah. Thanks for tuning into The Perspectrum. Have a great week. 